Let's pray together. Father, we long for the day when all creation will cry. To our God be the glory. And Lord, we ask that in these moments, you would impress upon us how glorious that day will be. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel the regret and remorse and the grief and the shame that will come upon those who forfeit their right to it. Lord, we ask that you would warn us of the coming judgment. We pray that you would cause us to fear you. And we pray that the fear of you would deliver us from hell. And Lord, we pray too that you would cause us to feel the glad wonder of mercy. As people who are guilty sinners, who have been justified by your grace through faith. Lord, cause us to feel the no condemnation in Christ Jesus that is ours. And send us out to preach the gospel, to proclaim it, to tell the good news. We ask, Lord, that you would renew our hearts through your word this morning and seal us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yesterday morning, I was thinking about the sermon, contemplating the passage of Scripture before us, which is Psalms 137 and 138. I would invite you to turn there. And I received a phone call that is devastating, even to contemplate it now. This is a dear friend of mine with whom I went to school, and he has ruined his life. His life is in shambles. He, he related to me how he doesn't know where his wife is. She has left him. And she is not responding to his attempts to contact her. This was a man who was in Christian ministry. This is a man with multiple theological degrees. This is a man who has helped to... I should probably stop. This is a man who has had significant ministry and experienced significant blessing. And I couldn't help but think of Psalm 137, verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. What my friend was feeling as we talked on the phone yesterday is exactly what the people of God were feeling when, these, when this verse was written. These are people who had received God's covenant. These are people who had seen God's temple in their city, in Jerusalem. And they had so broken the covenant that they had brought down the very wrath of God on their own heads. And the temple was now reduced to ashes and rubble, and their young men had been slaughtered by the invading army, and they had been carried into exile, and in grief and shame, and humiliation, and remorse. 
They say the words in verse 1, by the waters of Babylon. They are no longer in Jerusalem. They are no longer in the land that God promised to Israel. They are now in Babylon. And this word Babylon, it's spelled the very same way that the word Babel is spelled. That famous word from Genesis 11, where they built that tower to try to climb their way into heaven. Same city, capital city of the seed of the serpent, capital city of wickedness and the holy people of God. The people who were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, have now been removed to the unclean realm of the dead and they sit there in remorse and shame, weeping over all that they have lost. We don't want this to happen to us. We don't want to ruin our lives. We don't want to keep committing the same sins, which is what Israel did. They, they, kept, they kept being drawn away by those same idols. And then, in an altogether unexpected way, the end came upon them. So, this text doesn't address this directly, but let me just urge you and exhort you to fight your sin. Romans 8, 12, and 13. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So by the Spirit, you need to practice righteousness. By the Spirit, you need to cultivate skill at defeating temptation. So practice it. This is, this is somewhat unrelated to the sermon text, but I'm trying to help us all avoid Psalm 137, verse 1. Okay, so, so come at it like you would come at learning to shoot a layup. I, I don't know if, you're, if you've played much basketball, but maybe you've watched somebody that has no skill and is trying to do this for the first time. They will have no ability, and what do they have to do? They have to keep getting to the point where they can bounce that ball and then move more quickly with it. And then they have to keep getting to the point where they can actually go off the left foot when they're doing a right-hand layup at the right distance from the goal and then put that thing off the glass in so that it bounces into the hoop. You have to practice it over and over and over again, and that's the way you have to fight sin. You need to practice it. You need to meditate on Scripture. You need to gather for worship. You need to be known. If you're, if you're a man in this congregation and you're trying to fight sin, you ought to show up Friday morning at 7 a.m. You ought to get to know the brothers around you. You ought to share your weaknesses and temptations. You ought to hear the word of God. And you ought to practice righteousness. Practice fighting temptation. Because you don't want to sit down by the waters of Babylon and weep. You don't want to ruin your marriage. You don't want to lose the respect of your children. You don't want to forfeit the right to do what God has called you to do because you've disqualified yourself from ministry. You don't want to lose your job. On and on the consequences go. Sin is going to cost us all more than we want to pay. Look at verse 2. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. These instruments that were used in the worship of God in the holy place, in the, at the temple, in the holy city, in the holy land. They used to praise the Lord with these sacred devices. And now they're useless. They're hanging on trees in Babylon. 
The word Babylon occurs two times in this psalm. Uh, verse 1, and then verse 8. I think you're getting an inclusio there, you know, where it's kind of a bracket. You're going to get reference to Babylon at the beginning, reference to Babylon at the end. And, and I think it's worth knowing this because it's like understanding the architecture of a building that you're in. And if you understand the architecture of a building that you're in, you understand what things are for. So I'm going to suggest that there's an architecture to this psalm, and it's all sort of building toward the statements that are in the middle. In the middle of this psalm, this psalmist is going to make a commitment. And that's, that's sort of the, the driving important point made in this psalm. And then these other statements, they're, they're, they're surrounding it and bringing out its message. In verse 3, he's going to talk about how the Babylonians taunted the exiles. Look at verse 3. He's, he's just said in, in verse 1, by the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept. And now verse 3, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You know what the songs of Zion are? They're like the Psalms in the Bible. You know what the Psalms and the songs of Zion do? They celebrate the greatness of Yahweh. They say Yahweh is the true Lord of all other lords. Yahweh is the God over all other gods. And Yahweh is the world's true king who's going to reign over all the earth. And Yahweh's people have been defeated by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians certainly, no doubt, interpreted this as our gods got the better of Yahweh. So it's kind of like, hey, let's hear about Yahweh now. Why don't you sing us one of those Zion songs? Let's hear it. And the people of God don't have the heart to sing. It's true that Yahweh is God of gods and Lord of lords. It's also true that because of their sin, they have been separated from him. They have forfeited their right to his presence. And they are in exile. And so, naturally, verse 4, they say, how shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? We're in exile. We're suffering the curses of the covenant. How can we so sing songs of Yahweh's triumph and Yahweh's skill and Yahweh's power over all creation? How can we do that here? So, you've got this opening statement about where they are in verses 1 and 2, and then you've got the taunt the taunts of the enemies in verses 3 and 4. And now you have, in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist's own personal resolve. And what he says here is, is where I think the most important points of application for us are to be found from, from this psalm. Verse, verse 5, he says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Now, Jerusalem is this guy's hometown. But when he says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, he's not just talking about home. Because it's like, it's like Jerusalem is a way for him to refer to the reign of God. Jerusalem is a way for him to refer to God's promises to defeat evil and overcome sin and roll back death, swallow it up forever so that there's resurrection and new creation. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, is like him saying, if I forget what it is to know God. That's what this is about. 
What he's saying is, I will not become a Babylonian. I have been removed from the holy place, but I will not become defiled. It's almost like, I mean, we could almost imagine these words being spoken by Daniel. Remember him? He gets carried off into Babylon. He's probably a kid of like 15 years old, given when he's exiled and how much longer he lives, according to that book. And he's probably not exiled with his parents or his rabbis or any of his teachers. And he gets over there to Babylon, and the king starts saying, here, eat of my food. And Daniel resolves not to defile himself. He will, he will continue to eat in accordance with the teaching of the Bible. That's what he says. He, may, he says, I may be out of the holy place, but I'm going to eat in a holy way. I'm, I'm still going to live for the Lord, is what he says. That's like this psalmist saying, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. This guy knows what his right hand is for. He knows what his skill is for. It's for God. I live for you, Lord. And if I forget your purposes and your kingdom, let me forget everything. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And then verse 6, and, and I think it's worth mentioning here that this guy, the writer of this psalm, he's a pretty good poet. I mean, you know, I was an English major, and one of my professors, he measured the greatness of a, of a, a, a piece that was written by an author by whether it would be read in a hundred years. This guy's poem has been read for how many hundreds of years now? This is pretty significant, right? And look at what this very accomplished poet says here. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. He knows what his tongue is for. He knows what his poetry is for. God, if I don't live for you, if I don't use my gifts and talents for you, if I start acting like a Babylonian, if I grow comfortable in the world, take it away. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Take away whatever skill I've got. At the end of verse 6, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This is amazing. This guy is not in Jerusalem. He is not going to hear the music. He is not going to be hearing the people sing. He is not going to be joining with the festal throng. He's not going to be seeing the people streaming into Jerusalem anymore for the feasts. And yet he wants the worship of God in Jerusalem, his relationship with God. He wants these things to constitute his highest joy. What he's saying is, don't replace the delights of knowing you, God, with these other things that I am now immersed in. Don't let me get distracted from God with all of this worthless trash that these Babylonians live for. So, we should ask ourselves, what's my highest joy? And have I resolved, have I resolved to make it so that God's kingdom is my highest joy? I was blessed last night. Jill and I were meeting with some folks, and I was blessed to hear my wife talk about how 
uh, for about the last year or so. She has, uh, morning by morning, prayed through the Lord's Prayer and had the opening words of the Lord's Prayer reorient her perspective and her agenda every day. And this came out of uh, what Aaron talked to the ladies recently when they went through the Lord's Prayer. Praise God for this. Uh, she, she talked about how praying the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And it's like a, it's like a about face. Not my agenda, not my program, not everything that's on my heart. Lord, I'm going to reorient myself toward you. What a blessing to hear my wife speak those words. This is, this is how we got to live. And, and you've got to practice it. If you don't practice it, it's not going to happen. It's like, I mean, there, there are people here that are, that are highly trained athletes. And uh, you could go talk to Ryan, who's visiting here with us this morning. If he stops running, he's not going to be able to run those long races. If he stops swimming, he's not going to be able to complete the, the, the swim or, or the cycle. It's not going to happen. You've got to train. Physical training has some value, Paul says. Godliness has value for everything. We must train. We must, we must take stock of our lives and say, what's my highest joy? What am I living for? What am I using the way that God has gifted and, ta- and, and given me talents and, and equipped me to do? And, and, and then we need to, to make a vow like this in verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. That's the center of Psalm 137. And it's not what Psalm 137 is known for. But it's because we don't know the architecture of the psalm. That's the central focus of this psalm. This guy is saying, even in Babylon, I'm going to live for the Lord. That's what he's saying. I'm going to walk with God. I'm going, I'm going to know him. If we're stricken, like Chris's dad has been stricken, like Matt's dad was recently stricken. I was talking to Matt yesterday about nine months ago or so. His dad was, he looked like a young man of his age. And then the diagnosis came and immediately there was a decline and now he's gone. If that happens to us, When they start talking about our lives, what are they going to say about us? He lived for God. He loved the Lord. He loved the Bible. He loved God's people. This is what we want said of us, isn't it? This man walked with God. That's the kind of person we want to be. It's not going to happen if you don't plan for it. It's not going to happen if you don't train for it. So, Right before this, verses 3 and 4, we had taunts. Now look at verse 7. Taunts. This guy says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. He's talking about the day when the Babylonians broke down the walls and burned the temple to the ground. And this is what the Edomites said. The Edomites descend from Esau, Jacob's brother. The Israelites descend from Jacob, right? Jacob and Esau. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. He's got a brother named Esau. Esau's descendants are the Edomites. So there's a familial treachery going on here, but it's bigger than familial treachery because what's happening is the Edomites are deciding we're going to join with the seed of the serpent in their campaign against Israel, the seed of the woman, and Yahweh. That's what the Edomites are doing. 
And so the psalmist says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. They cheered the Babylonians on as they destroyed the city and the temple. So you got the taunts of the Edomites in verse 7. You got the taunts of the Babylonians in verses 3 and 4. You got the psalmist's resolve in verses 5 and 6, and that brings us to the end. And, and these two verses, Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9, this is what this psalm is famous for. And um, I'm going to read the verses, and then we'll back up and, and think about them together, okay? Psalm 137, I'm just going to read verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. People have been offended by these verses. Lots of people. I'm going to read to you from a couple of guys who were offended by these verses. A guy named Francis Watson, pretty, pretty famous uh, theologian today. This is what he writes. Quote, Christian victims of oppression could never legitimately appropriate this psalm in its entirety. It's like he's saying, look, if you want to pray maybe verses 1 through, well, you probably shouldn't pray verse 7, according to Francis Watson. But if you want to pray some of the other parts, that's okay, but you can never do the whole thing. And then he goes on. He, he says, we, we could never le legitimately appropriate this psalm in its entirety, however extreme their sufferings. And it's... And, its use in Christian liturgical context, he's talking about these verses, this psalm, can in no circumstances be justified. And you know what he quotes? He's got a footnote, and he quotes the way that the Anglicans, uh, the, the Church of England, in one of the, their recent councils, they decided that the use of this psalm could be considered optional according to their, their, the depth of their wisdom. He goes on, although the psalm as a whole belongs to Christian scripture, it is not permitted to enact its total communicative intention. It is not permitted. By whom? Who sets this rule? Who is setting up this standard, Mr. Watson, Dr. Watson, Professor Watson, according to which you are standing in judgment over the Bible? By what authority? By what standard of right and wrong are you doing this? And then he goes on, here's his, here's his justification. For all communicative actions embodied in Holy Scripture are subject to the criteria established by the speech act that lies at the center of Christian Scripture, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the enfleshment and the enactment of the divine word. So he's basically saying, look, Jesus, crucified and raised. That's why you can't do Psalm 137. Uh, excuse me, hold up just a second here. The wrath of God visited in Psalm 137, 8 and 9 is the wrath of God that requires the crucifixion of the eternal second person of the Godhead. You cannot have one without the other. You nullify the one, you nullify the other. You can't play off God's justice against His love. It can't be done. His love is an expression of His justice. His justice is an expression of His love. Closer to home, C.S. Lewis. I like C.S. Lewis. 
man, he says things beautifully, doesn't he? He's really got away with words. He's really good. But sometimes he's nasty. Like when he comments on psalms like this one. I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry that I have to read this to you. I'm sorry that C.S. Lewis said this kind of thing. I wish he wouldn't have. I wish somebody had said, hey, wait a minute, Jack or Clive. You can't put that in there. But this is what he says. He says, he first objects to the, quote, spirit of hatred that we see in a psalm like Psalm 137. And then he goes on to mock it. And he refers to its almost comic naivety. He's saying this is so small and so little-minded that we can laugh at it. And then he says, he uses words like devilish and diabolical and vindictive hatred that he says is festering and gloating and undisguised. And then he asserts, quote, this is C.S. Lewis, we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it. We should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. What am I going to say in response to this? Well, Dr. Watson, Professor Lewis, you guys need to do a little bit more careful study of the text, okay? That's where I want to start. And let's just back up from this, and let me say, first off, that, that when you come to the Psalms, anytime you, you read the Psalms, I think you should let Psalms 1 and 2 control your interpretation of the rest of the Psalter. Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1, you've got the blessed man who's meditating on the scriptures day and night. Psalm 2, um, why do the nations rage? The peoples gather together. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And remember what the Lord says there. He, Psalm 2, 9, will rule them with a rod of iron. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay? So you've got a blessed man in Psalm 1, and then you've got an anointed king, a Messiah in Psalm 2, who's going to crush his enemies. Look at, look at verse 8 of Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed. There, there are different words, different Hebrew words for blessed. Um, there's this word baruch which means, you know, blessed be or something like this. And then there's this word ashrei. The word ashrei is right here. Ashrei also begins Psalm 1. Ashrei ha'ish. And then it goes on to describe him. Blessed is the man. And then the same word opens verse 9. Ashrei, blessed shall he be. So here's what I would suggest. And, and you know what the last phrase of Psalm 2 is? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And it's the same word, ashrei. So this word ashrei brackets Psalms 1 and 2. And it's used twice here in Psalm 137, 8 and 9. And, and so I'm going to suggest to you that the guy the psalmist is blessing is the blessed man from Psalm 1. And then let's keep reading here. Verse 9, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, we'll come back to this in just a second, and dashes them. That word dashes, that, that particular verb occurs twice in the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 2, verse 9, Psalm 137, verse 9. Those are the two times this word happens. Who's doing the dashing? The blessed man who is the anointed king of Psalm 2. That's who's doing the dashing. And it goes further because while C.S. Lewis and Francis Watson think that the psalmist has an attitude problem or an anger problem, actually, actually, when the Lord told Moses what his name means, the Lord said, he said, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then it's like he's going to define the meaning of the, of the word Yahweh. 
He says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. And then he goes on, and eventually he gets to this phrase where he says, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children. That's what God said about himself. And then, you know what what that goes back to, I think? I think that goes back to Genesis 3.15. When the Lord God said to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, or offspring, and her seed. And he, the seed of the woman, is going to bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. So I think the psalmist is saying... The Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman, is going to be the Psalm 1, blessed man, who's going to be the Psalm 2, anointed king, who is going to enact the Exodus 34, 6, and 7 character of God by crushing the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent. So the psalmist, I think, is doing a lot of biblical interpretation here. He's bringing bringing together Genesis 3.15, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 1. He's bringing all this together, and he's blessing the one who's going to deliver God's people. One of Dr. Gentry's favorite authors, a guy named Otmar Kael, that's how Dr. Gentry would have us pronounce it, he writes this, quote, The inhabitants of the oppressor city or the children of the ruling dynasty concretize the continuation of the unrighteous empire. Let me translate that for you. The king's kids are going to perpetuate the rule of, the, the rule of wickedness. In this vein, Kale continues, one might translate, happy is he who puts an end to your self-renewing domination. He's going to bring an end to the kingdoms of the world. That's what the psalmist is saying poetically. The psalmist is saying, blessed is the one who's going to rise up and crush the head of the serpent and his seed. That's what he's saying. Listen to these words of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. The one who is not with me is against me. Matthew 11, verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And in Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39, Jesus likened his return, his coming, to a flood which came unexpectedly and swept away the wicked. And like the psalmist, you know what the psalmist is saying here essentially, I think, in Psalm 137? He's a, I think we could, we could sort of paraphrase this with that one word from 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Maranatha, our Lord come. And when the early church prayed that with Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, they're praying for exactly what the psalmist articulates here. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. I I think that Psalm 137 is setting up Psalm 138 because we've got, in verses 8 and 9, we've got this contemplation of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, character of God, and this And this implicit declaration that the future king from David's line, the Messiah we're hoping for, is going to enact that. These ideas are going to come back in Psalm 138. But look at the superscription of Psalm 138. Of David. you got no superscription on 137. And and you haven't had one uh, since, I think, 133 is the last one. And, And so it's like we get this hope for the future Messiah... 
And then we get this return to these Psalms of David. And every one of 138 through 145 is a Psalm of David. So there's a movement of thought here that goes like this. We're in exile in Babylon. And blessed is the one who's going to rise up and bring God's kingdom into being. And then here come these Psalms of David. The implication being the future king from David's line is the one we're hoping for who's going to do this for us. And Psalm 138 starts as though it's happened. Look at verse 1. David prays, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods, the gods that the Babylonians thought had triumphed over Yahweh. Before the gods, I sing your praise. And then in verse 2, it's like he's back in Jerusalem. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. And that mention of God's name recalls uh, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Moses said in Exodus 33, 19, he said, show me your glory. And God's response was, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you. And then, and then he did what I just quoted a few minutes ago in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Look at verse 2 here in the, middle, in the second part of the verse. Give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness or truth. This is exactly what Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says. A God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness or truth. And then he goes on in verse 2. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God's name, his reputation, his character matter most to him. And God's word is where he communicates his character. He communicates his purposes. And his name, his reputation, depends upon him following through on his word. So he's exalted above all things, his name and his word. So you get David's praise in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, and then you get this contemplation of God's character, God's name in the second part of verse 2. And then this brings us to the middle of this psalm's architecture in verses 3 and 4, and this is remarkable. Verse 3, David says, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. What he's saying is, I was humble in my point of need, And I cried out to you, and you answered me, and you strengthened me in my soul. There's this great story back in Samuel about this moment in David's life when uh, he'd been been driven out by Saul, and he had this sort of army with him out in the wilderness, and uh, they're going around, and they they try to join with the Philistines because the Philistines are about to fight against Israel, and David's plan is, in the middle of the battle, to turn against the Philistines and, and help Israel in the battle. And the Philistines suspect this, so they send David home. Well, while David's been away, um, a raiding party of Amalekites has come through, and they've burned down David's city, and they've captured David's David's wives. He had multiple wives. That's a bad thing. But they captured his wives. They they, they plundered his town, and then they they fled. And, And the Bible says that the men with David thought of stoning him. And then it says, but David strengthened himself in God. That's exactly what's going on here in verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. When you're in trouble, you should cry out to the Lord. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and, and you want to be one, you should cry out to the Lord. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If, if you're here this morning and you're thinking something like this, I don't know how to fight my sin. I'm no good at overcoming my temptations. You should cry out to the Lord. He will strengthen your soul. He will give you help. He will meet you. He'll do exactly for you what he did for David here. Okay, so that's, that's one part of the middle. Verses 4 and 5 are the other part of the middle. And this, I think this is, this is beautiful. This is so encouraging to me. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth. Does that phrase sound familiar from the Psalms? All the kings of the earth. Back in Psalm 2, you know what those kings of the earth were doing in verse 2? They were setting themselves against Yahweh and his anointed. And now look at what they're doing here. Verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. You know what this means, I think? It means that some of the guys that heard the warning in Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's what Psalm 2 says. Some of these kings heard that warning and they're like, that's right. I got to turn away from wickedness and I got to bow the knee and praise this God. And you know what else I think played a part in that? The imprecatory prayers of God's people in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 137. Look, it produces repentance. These guys turn the wicked kings who were formerly rebellious. They hear the warning from God's word. You're going to face wrath. And they hear God's people saying, blessed is the one who's going to destroy you. And they realize, yeah, we're going to get crushed. But he's merciful. The only thing for us to do is repent. And they repent. And they praise the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you should follow their example. Because the warning stands for you too, even though you're not a king. Even though you're not a king, you should hear the warning. You will be destroyed in the way if you continue in your rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. But if you turn and if you, if you swear allegiance to God's king, you can join, verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. Look at what it goes on to say there in verse 4. For they have heard the words of your mouth. What words? I think Psalm 2. Psalm 2 where the Lord says, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. He's going to reign. And they hear the warning and they turn. Look at verse 5. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord. That word way, ways, lest you perish in the way, the way that they're on, the way of rebellion. And now they're singing of the ways of the Lord. Psalm 1-6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And these formerly rebellious kings are now saying, isn't obedience to the God of the Bible a glorious and good thing? Isn't there rest in knowing God? Isn't there joy in being forgiven by the true and living God? We don't have to cut ourselves. We don't have to offer our babies up on these altars. We don't have to worship these dead idols. We know God. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord. Look at the end of the verse. For great is the glory of the Lord. That's beautiful. 
The Lord helps David, verse 3, and he converts the kings in verses 4 and 5. We had his character at the end of verse 2. Look at, look at God's character in verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He regards people like David who are about to get stoned who cry out, for him, cry, cry out to him for help. He regards formerly self-important, exalted kings who realize I'm about to get crushed under the wrath of that God. And so the only answer for me is to make myself low. He regards the lowly. And if you will turn, he will regard you too. If you will cry out to him for help and forgiveness, he will regard you. But then look what the verse goes on to say. But the haughty he knows from afar. It's like he keeps himself distant from the proud. This is just, I think, another way of saying James, James 4, 6. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. That's God's character in verse 6, and it matches the end of verse 2. And then verses 7 and 8, the confidence with which David talks here matches the praise that he had opened Psalm 138 with. Look at, look at how verse 7 sounds like Psalm 23. Remember Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. The health, wealth, prosperity preachers are such liars. This is where you're going to walk most of the time. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. That's another way to say, verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. I was walking in trouble, and you kept me alive. And then he goes on, verse 7, You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. This, this recalls statements, I think. I mean, this is David, right? Psalm 138. This recalls Psalm 110, verse 1, doesn't it? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then later in the psalm, The Lord is at your right hand. And then it goes on to talk about the mighty things he's going to do. Psalm 16. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. And then verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. You know what I think David is saying? God's going to keep the promise that he made in 2 Samuel 7. God's going to fulfill his purpose for me. He's going to keep me alive as long as I'm supposed to be alive. And he's going to raise up my descendant after me, Jesus he will fulfill his purpose for me. And then he says, and this is, I, I think that the, the, the next statement in verse 8 is responding to something earlier in Psalm 89. You remember, you remember how Psalm 89, if you were here, maybe you went through this psalm with us. In Psalm 89, at the, near the end of the psalm, the psalmist asks in verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. You know why he's saying that? He's saying that because the Babylonians have broken down the wall, burned down the temple, killed the, the heir to David's throne, and carried everybody else off into exile. And the psalmist is like, where's your steadfast love to David? And then 138, verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures 
forever. That line of descent was not cut off. You can go read the line of descent in the genealogy in Matthew 1. It's like before it, before the, 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 the heirs are born, David knows they're going to keep coming. We're going to keep having a male heir. And it's going to terminate in the king. He's, he's going to arise. The Lord is going to do it because his steadfast love endures forever. And then he closes the psalm in verse 8. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Maybe this reminds you of Psalm 8. I think it's supposed to. Um, when I consider the work of your fingers, the work of your hands, do not forsake your creation, I think is what David is saying. That's the work of God's hands. Don't, for, don't, don't forsake what you've started to do through me that's going to culminate in the redemption of the world and the renewal of all creation. So Psalm 138 tells us that there's hope. There's hope even for people whose lives are like the temple, burned down, ashes, rubble. As, as I was in the, in the aftermath of that phone call that I got yesterday, I reached out to people who were members of this brother's church, and I was so encouraged by the church. And... and you know, I think, I think people say horrible things about the church, things they shouldn't say. So I want to say good things about the church. And, and, and I'm gonna, I want to say that I, there's not a doubt in my mind that if there are people in our congregation that, go, that went through or, go, or, or, or have been through things like what this friend of mine is going through, there, there'd be people doing this kind of thing. An elder from that church meets with that guy once a week. And somebody from the church calls him every night. They are constantly with him. They, they, they have surrounded him with love. They, it's, I was so encouraged when I got this text message as this guy detailed, the, the elder that I'd reached out to, he detailed for me everything that they're trying to do to keep this guy on the straight and narrow. And there's not a doubt in my mind that Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial would respond in exactly the same way. Because I've seen it happen. I've seen people in desperate straits and an elder for the church, elder in the church, step up and say, I'm going to meet with you every week. We're going to do this. I've seen regular, constant phone calls happen. It's tremendously encouraging. There, there is no better place to be than among God's people. The, there's a movement of thought from Psalm 137 to 138. It, it goes from weeping in verse 1 of 137 to praise in verse 1 of 138. And the, the songs that are asked for in verse 3 of 137 are being sung by the formerly rebellious kings in 138. They're singing God's praises. There's a glorious movement of thought from weeping and longing to praise and thanks. And on the day that Jesus comes to reign, he will enact God's character as God's king. And his soul, the soul of King Jesus, will be emboldened by God's own strength, just in the way that David describes in verse 3. And the humble will be exalted, the proud will be brought low, and every one of God's purposes for the world in Christ will be accomplished. Because God is not going to forsake the work of his hands. He has exalted his name and his word above all else. So let's respond to this by meditating on the glories of that day. And, and let's so meditate that we might be motivated 
to perseverance and self-restraint. With the, when, when the men met last Friday, I mentioned this, this line in this novel by Graham Greene called The Power and the Glory. It's a novel about a Catholic priest. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't like Roman Catholicism. I think it's bad. I'd love to talk with you about that later. I don't want to go into it here. But anyway, the novel's really good. This, guy, this guy's being persecuted, and he's in a, he's in a, he's in a country. It's, it's a time in Mexico when, when uh, the communist government is trying to drive out all remnants of Christianity. So it's illegal to be a priest. It's illegal to be a Catholic. It's illegal to worship. And, um, and this priest stays, and he continues to serve God's people, but he becomes a drunk, and he commits grievous sins. And, and the people, they know he's a whiskey priest, but they still respect him. And they start treating him like a saint because he, he hangs on to the gospel. Well, you know, Roman Catholicism. <laughs> he tries to stay faithful. Just ignore the Catholicism in the novel. At one point, at one point, he says, if you're here as a Roman Catholic, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Sorry. <laughs> um, at one point, he says, it would have been easy to be a saint. All it would have taken was a little self-restraint and perseverance. I mean, I know it's not easy to be a saint, but self-restraint and perseverance putting sin to death, practicing righteousness. This is the path we got to get on to. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would use Psalm 137 to keep us from ever being those who sit down by the waters of Babylon in devastation because of the way that we have ruined our lives. Lord, spare us that fate, we ask. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to trust you and to study your word and to see how your character, you are a God of love and justice, and your character is going to be enacted by your king. And Lord, make us those who worship Jesus and celebrate him. And give us the joy, we pray, of seeing rebellious and wicked kings of the earth recognize that you are greater than they are and turn and believe. And Lord, help us to support those who are going around the world to do this, to proclaim the good news that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ, the King who will reign. We love you. We praise you. We ask for your help in these things. In Christ's name, amen.